This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Inspiration Project. The guest that we have today uh, may be well known to some of you. Mr. Mark Hadley has been writing professionally for over 30 years. He's listed his profession as a journalist for most of that time, although his experiences in writing have expanded into many other areas uh, beyond just the, the documentation of news and events. He's scripted and produced television series and documentaries in most of the major countries of the world, the BBC, PBS, SBS, as well as the major broadcasters in Australia, 7, 9, 10 networks. His award-winning movies, The Christ Files and The Life of Jesus, were shot across eight countries around the globe and are now available widespread across the global networks. He's a co-host of Hope 103.2's FM The Big Picture, a weekly radio show, vodcast, vodcast, looking at TV and cultural productions from a Christian perspective. Mark, it's fantastic to have uh, have you with us this afternoon. You sound like you're a, you're a busy young fellow. How, how are you fitting all of that into life and managing family and um, the, the demands of I'll a take, schedule I'll like that? I'll take that young. Yeah, indeed. I'll take that young every day of the week. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> and, and my age is a closely guarded figure, though I suspect As young would be. A few years behind me. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do we fit it all in? Um, I don't, uh, I definitely, when this drive started at a very young age, I did not think it was going to encompass all of what we're doing today. Or, in fact, that it was even going to be more than just me. Uh, and I think that's got a lot to do with God's graciousness mm. uh, in that, you know, he not only takes you amazing places, uh, any story can be incredible in his hands, but I think also he doesn't reveal to you everything at once. It would be like actually asking you to eat every meal you've ever mm. you know, had to digest in one sitting. And I don't think uh, some of the things that we've gone through, I wouldn't choose and uh, others have just as easily made us who we are today. So I think it's been a great process. Yeah. Mm. Well, that, that's interesting that you, you described that, that you you uh, recognised a drive as you described it very early in your life. Did you did you have big dreams at that stage? Did you did you think big future when you were a, a kid at school? That's a really good question. I I think we underestimate often um, how kids think about their lives. Um, like I remember as a very young kid, like uh, probably infant school. Mm. Um, I'm not even sure we still call it infant school, but I was around first class or second class. And um, I remember thinking then about having aspirations about life, mm. uh, about what I wanted to do with my life. Now, they, they were childish. You know, like uh, I guess some people were saying they wanted to be, you know, fighter pilots and some people wanted to be firemen and things like that. And I remember as a kid, um, I, I had, you know, this is not, nothing particularly Christian about it. It was just um, the desire to be remembered. Really? And it sounds very selfish when I say it that way. But as a kid, I thought I wanted to do something that mattered, you know, not something that was forgotten. Mm. Uh, now, 
I sometimes think about that as an adult and I look back into that and, I, and I'm reminded of that verse in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Yeah. Uh, that there's something, yeah, yeah, there's something in us that longs for forever. Yeah. Uh, and so even as a little kid, um, I was thinking, what can I do that lasts? Now, I was a, I, I was enamored of books. I loved books. My my second best friend was the librarian at the local um, library that was only open uh, two afternoons a week and one evening. So it was like, you know, truly local library. And I, um, and I think I, I saw books at a young age that were, I realized had been written a long time before me. Yeah. And, and I thought, wow, you know, these things sit around for a long time. And so writing, I guess, or storytelling just seemed to be something very early on that was calling to me and maybe gave me this idea of I could do something that lasted. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and like I said, this is mixed up in uh, every other dream that a kid has, to, you know, just playing forever and never going to school, no offense, um, or, um, uh, you know, just having fun with their family or all sorts of other things. But along underneath it all was just this desire to see yourself devoted to something that mattered mm. as opposed to things that didn't. I guess from an early age as a kid, my parents, I uh, was raised in a Christian family and my parents were forever talking about things in terms of what mattered and what didn't. Yeah. You know, um, living for God mattered. Yeah. Um, whether or not you were rich or poor didn't. Mm. Um, you know, what you did for a living didn't. How you did it, mm. who you did it for did matter. Mm. You know, and so I guess things mattering you know, it meant a great deal to me as a kid. Mm. So that that uh, aspiration that you had for a, a certain type of life or a certain um, sense of recognition, it was more than just fame. It was more than mm. being popular or well-known. There was value-laden understanding even in, in your early formative years. I, look, I think you're being really generous to me. I think as a kid, I would love to have been famous too. But <laughs> they don't I have think, to be mutually um, exclusive, I guess. Yeah, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, but actually, as I've got on in life, um, what I've noticed, you know, and I suppose we'll come back to this as we talk on, but what I've noticed is that, um, you know, if you pursue, the, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis now, but if you pursue the world, you'll generally miss it. Mm. But if you pursue um, God, you... Uh, we'll get indefinitely, uh, and you may get the world thrown in it as well. So I've, I've never really pursued fame, or, or I guess I've just tried to do the do the work. Mm. And things have happened along the way, and people have, you know, it's, it was interesting you introducing me because uh, to some degree I don't even recognise myself. Yeah, you know, like when when people list you know things or they're written down on a website or stuff like that, uh, it doesn't really remind. Me and me, I'm still the same kid trying to tell stories. Mm. And I think that's really where it began. Mm. You know, that um, I think it's as simple as this. Uh, I remember being given an opportunity uh, when I was in kindergarten to, I think I must have come across as the religious kid or something like that, um, to uh, tell the Christmas story by my teacher. Wow. Uh, and yeah, and I asked if I could just have a little while to organize this, you know, not like come up the front and tell it. But, um, so I, I wrote to some friends, we made some finger puppets and we turned it into like a performance more than just a story. And I, and I think at that point I was, you know, even as a kid, it just, 
lurched in your heart that you could tell a story and people could be enraptured or you could just say facts and people would, it would just glide over people's heads. There's something about story, even at that age, who doesn't remember uh, the teacher saying in the classroom, we're going to have story time now yeah. or going to the library and they're saying, we're going to have story time and, and it's, the, it's like the heightened excitement. Yeah. Um, so I guess I, I realized from, from an early age that I, I don't think I really understood it all, but I did understand that, that telling stories could be cool, could be great fun, so um, and also could be powerful. Were stories a big part of your childhood? Were you in a home where stories were, and books? And yeah, um, this is not a this is not a um, like an attempt to do a sob story or anything like that. Um, we came from a fairly uh, socially disadvantaged home. Mm. Um, and I didn't have a television, even though I've worked in television for more than 30 years now, I didn't have uh, a television until quite late in life. So what dad would do is he would take us up the library every Thursday night. This is like a family excursion. And we were allowed to borrow four books each. And, and I was so enraptured in this place. It was like exciting. As a kid, you got to go out at night. So that in itself was it always meant something special. Um, and for some weird reason, because mum was, you know, mum was a nurse and things had to get done in order and on time. We were all in our pajamas. So going out in our pajamas <laughs> to the library seemed strange too. <laughs> like we were in, in our dressing gowns and stuff. But you'd, you'd wander around this place and, um, and Rita, this wonderful, huge Bavarian woman, was the, the local librarian. <laughs> And she took it into her head to to steer me to books every Thursday night. And so I would go, I always used to sneak in maybe two extra or something like that and you get home and it would be my goal to read these books in a week so I could get new ones. And I remember my grandfather saying to me, um, we had a country town farm uh, situation and my grandfather would be visiting and he'd say, what, what are you reading, Mark? And I'd say, oh, I'm reading and I'd list off these books. He says, you can't be reading all those books at once, Mark. I said, oh, yes, you can, Granddad, because what you do is when you get tired of reading one, you just put it down, you pick the other one up and you keep reading that one. And so there was this, you know, a, a situation, I guess, in my family where um, if batteries ran out in torches, my name was mentioned, you know, it was like, because there was this suspicion that Mark had run the batteries down again. Reading you know? the books and under I the guess, covers. Reading the books under the covers. Who hasn't done that? Or, or at least I thought that was everybody's experience, but it was mm. definitely mine. Mm. And uh, so books, stories, they meant a lot. Yeah. I think they were just the way out mm. in some respects too. Of a very, very small town, uh, in country New South Wales or south coast New South Wales, kind of farming community, and uh, not a, not out in a bad way, but a vision of something much much bigger yeah. in the world. Yeah. So you you talked about growing up in a Christian home. So this the Christian story mm. was obviously one that surrounded you and that you were immersed in mm. in, your, in your growing up. When when and how did that change from being a story to your story? Somewhere in the dim, dark recesses of of, um, of childhood, my father started reading Bible stories to us. You know, every night. I, it's like my sister says her goal for her own children was that they would never remember when Bible stories began yeah. in their house. Yeah, yeah, and and I think my dad achieved that. But I have no idea when it started, but I do remember being, this is going to sound improbable, okay? I'm just warning everybody that's listening. It's going to sound a bit strange, that's okay. Um, 
but I was four and I remember having an argument with my brother who was, you know, the height of all wisdom. He was, you know, uh, he was nine. So, you know, there's an argument between a nine-year-old and a four-year-old about how one comes into a relationship with God. Mm. Now, he was arguing that, uh, I, I was arguing that you would repent of your sins and you'd come into a relationship with God um, once Christ had, had paid for everything. This is, you know, it's weird to me even wow. recounting this. And, and he would be saying to me that, no, uh, a relationship is a continuous thing. You might repent of your sins, but you, you need to keep coming before God uh, with, with, you know, bringing the things that you've done wrong. And this was a great you know, matter of consternation to me. So um, he and I headed out into the backyard where Dad was mowing the lawn and we waited patiently until Dad had finished um, mowing. And then we stood there and we said, which is it, Dad? Do you say, do you, you know, sorry once or do you keep saying sorry? And he said, well, it's like a relationship. Um, you enter into it by repenting once. But as you go on, if you upset someone who's important to you, you want to say sorry because it matters to you, not because it changes the relationship. So I marched back into my room. I kneeled down next to my bed and I said, God, I'm really sorry for, and I tried to think of the things that I that I really wasn't proud of for that day. And I think I've been doing that pretty much ever since. Yeah, wow. Um, so I, I think I was, yeah, I think I was always, I grew up a covenant kid, if that makes sense. Yeah. I grew up in a, in a family in a that loved yeah. Jesus. Yeah, and uh, and then I owned that, and I think like most Christians, that has God has deepened that and changed that mm. in the directions as I've gone on. My wife likes to say that God moves into your, your house, into your life like He moves into your house, mm. and you think He's there, and then He picks a new room yeah. to renovate. Yeah. You know, almost every year. Yeah, and uh, I feel like that's my experience. So I became, I started the journey very very young, but it's I think finished. there have been key points. No, gosh, no. <laughs> it's a good thing you're talking to me and not my boys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they are well and truly aware that their father has feet, feet of clay. Um, I think uh, it won't be finished. The day it's finished, God will take me home. Mm. You know, I'm only here for as long as God is seeing it achieve a purpose. Mm. Uh, and um, so, yeah, there's still plenty of work to do yet. So you're quite young. You, you've found this relationship with the God that is is vibrant and it's it's uh, active. You find a love for words and for stories. You talked about a drive that was inside you to to achieve something significant. When when did all of that come together for you? And and you have this sense of um, this is my you know, this is my call. I, I, yeah, I know. I, I wrote my first book at twelve. Um, but it, it remains unpublished and, and I drag it out every now and again and shake my head at it. <laughs> Maybe one day when I'm really, really, I've got nothing better to do, I'll clean it up. Um, but the, the truth is that I, I started trying to write things very early. I wrote my first movie script at, at um, 10, when I was in fourth class. Um, and not, these are like, and they're kids' versions of these things. Uh, today, kids make videos, and you know they're kids' videos when you look at them, but there's also a germ of something in there. Mm. And so um, when I was in um, high school, I think it all really started to come together, as it so often does uh, for kids, when the right person comes along. Mm. So, so I who had was that right an person English teacher. Yeah. Oh, and my English teacher in year seven, Mr. Brown, um, he seemed to take this seriously, this idea that I was talking about I'd like to write 
uh, and I was, and English was my favorite subject. And I was, but I was telling him I wanted to do something bigger. And he said, well, why don't you write a book? And I said, uh, you know, I'm not sure I can do that. He said, well, try. And so I would send him a chapter every week. And I, um, and I wrote a novel over a period of about a year. Um, again, that one's never been published. I know a few published since, but, but that one was, was just awakening to the idea that you could do this. And I remember just thinking, can you do this for a living? Because I came from a, a very manual community. Um, you know, my father was a wharfing. He uh, unpacked ships. Uh, my uh, grandfather, a farmer, you know, um, there were butchers and tradies and all sorts of things. So I was kind of used to looking at work as, you know, things you did with your hands. And then if you're writing, that might be something you do afterwards. And then um, Mr. Brown pointed out to me that you could be a journalist. And that could be someone, that, that was a person who wrote for a living. Mm. And I thought, wow, I'm, that sounds like a really interesting idea. So when work experience, I mean, skip forward a couple of years, when work experience came along, I was always writing my personal time, but I went out and I did work experience for the local newspaper. And that was, uh, I paid it still in publication, the Illawarra Mercury, and uh, down in Wollongong Way. And I went there um, for two weeks and I realized that there was something, the two, I realized two fundamental facts about journalism. The first was that no one was going to pay you much ever. You know, <laughs> yeah, unless you know, there might be two or three people at the top of the tree making a lot of money, but, but generally speaking, it was, a, you know, it was a pretty poorly paid job. Uh, but the rewards, besides being paid, were immense because everything that everybody else learned about you experienced firsthand. And I thought, wow. Well, you go out to a, say there was a, uh, just a, something as simple as, as whales washing up on a beach and people finally save them. In order to report on that story, you had to go and experience it. Right. You wouldn't just get something on, a, on the phone. You'd go to, down to the beach. And, and I remember stories covering things alongside the journalists and work experience and realizing that you could really be right at the heart of life and see things happening, whether it be everything from, from refugees through to uh, um, political uh, situations, through to strikes and all sorts of stuff. I later in life became a, a, uh, an industrial roundsman and then a political roundsman for, for those very reasons that you would be right at the heart of stories that were happening. You'd see history happen yeah, yeah. and then you'd try and convey that to people. And then every now and again, too, I noticed one last thing, and that was your stories as a journalist could actually make a difference. Mm. Now, I want to be clear, most, I would say in, in working in newsrooms for probably about 10, 15 years, I've noticed my stories make a real difference maybe two mm. or three times. Um, they make a real change. But gee, you'd live for those two or three times. Yeah. Where you could act, and you wonder each time you did something if this was one of those days. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, you, you used a or you hinted at an idea in your response there that unpacking what it meant that people reading about stories, you were experiencing stories. And you, you made some sort of observation that it's almost like that life is a story, that you were involved in the story mm. of, of people's shared experiences unfolding. Is that sort of how you see relationships and your engagement with the, the world? You know, I've never actually thought of it that way, but I think I'm now going to pass it off as my own idea, if you don't mind. Um, I think that um, the life is, it doesn't really matter if you're talking about creative writing, mm. and so well, something we might call fictional, 
or, or factual writing um, as I'm writing documentary scripts or, or things like that. Um, it is all life mm. because even the best made-up stories mm. have to reflect life as it really works mm. or we're not going to recognize them. Yeah. They could take place on a starship or they could take place in a fantasy world. It really wouldn't matter. But the audience has to recognize them. There's a type of, there's three basic scripts that, that you write. Um, one uh, is uh, the quest. It's it's when a hero has to try and get something. Mm. You know, it might be get the girl, get the job, that sort of stuff. There's the chess game where in which the uh, your protagonist is faced with an antagonist. Like that there's a, it's like Star Wars. Luke has got to confront mm. uh, Darth Vader, you know, or there's no real story. It's a chess game, move and counter move. Could be mm. like a hero and the villain could be a storm. You know, you do one thing, the storm does another thing. Yep, yep. But the third, type of, the third type of script, which I think I've always been attracted to and I've tried to write, whether it be in documentary form or in story, has been the life lesson. And the life lesson script has one fundamental rule, you know, apart from a million others I can go into, but the one fundamental rule is when you say a lesson at the end of the script, everybody's got to recognize mm. that's truth. Mm. You know, you've got to, your, your audience has got to be nodding. Mm. You've made, you've made your argument well. And I think that um, when you say, is that how I see story, you know, life as a, as a story and I'm telling parts of the story, I think I've been trying to tell life lessons one way or another, whether it be news or whether it be uh, fiction that I've written. It's all about coming to something that people can actually latch onto and see a truth in. Yeah, that's interesting because reading a little further along that that line of thought, at least for my thinking, you're, what, I, what, I, what I'm hearing is a description that even if it's a fictional story, it must be speaking truthfully. There's, yes. there's got to be an element Absolutely. Of, of truth even in that fiction that makes it a story worth, or that makes it a story that makes sense. Yeah, and in all honesty, it doesn't even have to be an attractive truth. Mm. Um, sometimes it can be a, it can be a a, a character, um, whether it be you know true story or uh, a fictional one, getting right to the end and realizing they're not that great. Well, they're not that they, they couldn't really achieve things by themselves. It could be a life lesson uh, that says, you know, you 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 can't be separate of your family. Mm. Or a, a storyline that I prefer very much is that there is there is more to life mm. than just what we bring to it. Mm. That there is uh, another layer to reality, uh, the spiritual. That there is God uh, out there, and we're we're kidding ourselves if we think to ourselves that that we're, we're going to get through this life all on our own. Um, and so I feel like these truths, positive or negative, however they make you feel, make you recognize, make you nod, you know, um, that's, that's real. Mm. I feel like the, the interesting thing about the story as a, as a format is that it, it gets around our intellect. Mm. I mean, like you couldn't talk to somebody outside a, a theater. You know, you might be, um, you know, catching up with a mate or a friend or something like that um, for a coffee and they could come across as the most hardened atheist mm. or something like that. They could come across as uh, the most antagonistic person. But take them into a film and they set aside, yeah. you know, their presuppositions for a moment and they listen to the story. The story bypasses their, you know, presuppositions about life and speaks to something quite deeper. And people, you know, can come out quite profoundly moved 
in ways that they never quite um, saw coming. And that's what I like about the story. It sneaks under your guard. Mm. Uh, people settle in. You know, there's a, uh, a sociological theory uh, that says that there are only three places you know, in, in a human experience that we actually stare into the light sources uh, and all of them are related to reflective moments and open-hearted moments. One is like when we stare into fire, you know, mm. we're sitting around fire and yeah. you see people just reflecting and looking at fire. The other one is uh, staring into the stars. Yeah. You know, a lot of people sit back and look at the stars. And the third one, um, sociologists point out, uh, is television or yeah. cinema. But there's something about that experience of sitting isolated, somewhat in the dark, but opening yourself up and, and having light poured in that seems to make us particularly malleable um, and, and tender to touch, you know, in terms of the stories. And, um, and I, I think a lot about that and try and think to myself, not when I write, not to go head on into somebody and say, this is um, how you should think, but more, um, you know, to, to ask the question which they already know the answer to, but maybe haven't got around to saying. Um, there's a line in... Um, uh, in Romans chapter one, uh, where Paul talks about the fact that uh, creation and the existence of God is is known to people, yes. but it's, in some respects, it's it's written on their hearts by yes. God, yes. and so that's why they're accountable. But I also see that as a positive thing. I think to myself, when I'm starting to try and talk about truth in a story, or I'm doing a good interview and I'm trying to bring out truth, or or we're bringing together a lot of things, you know, from different countries, and we're we always try and keep our eye on what is the central truth mm. here. And we feel like we have an advantage because we know that it's true to Scripture, because we know that it's true to God. Mm. We know that there's a germ of that truth already sitting in our audience's mind. In some degree, we just have to bring it out for them. Mm. The, the notion we've been talking about, the, the, the power of story, have you ever or have you come to any conclusions about why story gets under our our presuppositions, why it's so penetrative? Yeah. Um, gosh, here was I. Yeah, you've got some great questions. You Obviously, you've got good researchers and things working for you. Um, I, I think my conclusion is that we are in a story, Yeah. that God is a, is a storyteller. Good. Um, there is a, a grand narrative going on. Um, there is the... The hero story of all hero stories. Mm. There is the life lesson story of all life lesson stories going on, and it started uh, when God said, "Let there be light," mm. uh, and and it is rolling on, and it will come to an end. Mm. Um, and every aspect that we like about story, um, the, the classic hero structure. Uh, here is the hero. The hero is faced with a particular trial. Um, the hero gets stuck up a tree. Uh, you know, things get worse rocks and stones thrown at them, how are they going to find a solution to their problem, the moment, the realisation, or what we call the demon, and then the, the solution. Mm. Uh, that structure is history. Mm. That structure is what is going on all around us. I think we're in a story. It's, in, it's, we're, it's inescapable yes. for us. I think that um, we are in someone else's story. And here's the tricky thing. Um in most human stories, we write ourselves as the hero. Yeah. 
And so it's very, very easy to sell a story to someone where we are the hero mm. because everyone likes to identify with the fact that they'll overcome and, and they appreciate what the hero's done and they probably would have done the same thing or, mm. or they value what that person has done. Um, but the truth is in this story, we're the ones being rescued. Mm. We're not the hero. And I think that's probably the hardest thing for people to get about the gospel. Uh, I, I think that they can admire Jesus and they can love Jesus, but they can stop at the point because they, it's very hard in some respects to, to identify with Jesus because we just can't be him. Yeah. There's been no one like him. There never will be someone like him. Uh, and when you, when you come to terms with that, there's only one role left mm-hmm. in the story, and that's the, the person who needs the rescuing, mm-hmm. you know, the, by the hero, not the hero. And I think that's where emotionally a lot of us stop mm-hmm. because, because it's a big thing to admit that you need rescuing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think stories are both attractive because God has put story in our hearts. We're, we're part of a story. But I think that the story is hard to hold on to mm-hmm. because it's an unflattering role mm-hmm. that we have to come to, that, that we're not going to rescue ourselves in this one. You've been talking in that response, Mark, about the the story of our own existence and our own life that we we cast ourselves in this story and the challenge it is to to cast ourselves in not the centre. There's, mm. there's also the issue where people will be telling them stories where they're, they're, they're central, but it's not a happy story. It's not an optimistic story. It's it's full of, of um, challenge and trial and desperation and disappointment how important is it for you to to wrestle with what story are you telling about yourself as you make your way in life? Mm. Um, I think I think you're going to go nowhere until you actually realise where you sit in the story. Mm. Uh, I think that. Um, for one of a better phrase, um, I think your story is going to be a particular type of story. And it's called a tragedy. Mm. Um, the, the basic definition of a tragedy is that the hero, the, or the you know protagonist in the story, the main character, carries around with inside of them the seeds of their own destruction. Yes. So you know Hamlet is the classic yes. uh, tragic story because in the end Hamlet is. I hope I'm not doing any spoilers here. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Hamlet basically um, you know ends up becoming his own enemy, mm-hmm. destroying himself because he can't make the decision he needs to make. Uh, and I think uh, if we don't realise uh, where we sit in this life story, if we don't realise where we sit in relationship to God, then we'll have a story all right, but it'll be a tragic one. Yeah. It'll look like we're making advances, but in the end, we'll be, you know, how does Jesus put it? He'll be building a house on sand. Yeah. Now, your idea of the, that you will be sufficient will fail you. I, I think um, uh, we, you and I can reflect because we are men of a certain age. <laughs> but I feel that there is a um, there is a lesson that comes to you somewhere in your 40s where the dream has lost a bit of the shine mm. uh, and you're starting to look down the next 40 years mm. and you're realizing that if you, you know, everything you did in your youth and your strength did not amount to to everything you thought it would. Yes. Uh, and if you, if that's all there is, 
then you start to realize that um, this is going to be a pretty sad finish line. Now, some people managed to lie to themselves all the way through the 80s and, I'm, you know, the 90s uh, yeah. to their deathbed. And I'm not trying to be depressive. I'm just trying to say, if you can actually grasp the truth, it's a lot happier to be in. Mm. If you keep telling yourself, like I've had some, uh, you know, older relatives and things like that, I'm going to make it all, it's all going to work out for me and I'll be the source of my own salvation. Uh, if you keep telling yourself that, it's a very sad finish. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever seen anyone have a happy ending on that basis. Yeah. So we've been talking uh, with the assumption that we are, we need to find our place in the, the meta-narrative that recounts the story of redemption. You're part of a, a, a regular process of critiquing the culture and the stories that culture are presenting. What do you think is the current meta-narrative that's the alternative to, to a religious view or a Christian view? Yeah, uh, these things move slowly through society, uh, but the current meta-narrative, uh, it probably has two prongs to it. The first is postmodernism uh, that sort of was introduced in the 1980s and 90s, um, firstly through university. The idea that there was no real understanding to life to be had, that all truths were equal. In fact, all things were true. And you could choose, and that was, it was relative to the individual. So what I believe was good for me and what you believe is good for you, and so long as we didn't hurt each other along the way, um, that was equally valid. Mm. I think it's the first thing that we still, particularly as Australians, we still love this idea that, you know, so long as you're all right and I'm all right, we're not hurting each other, no skin off my nose, you know, we'll all be fine, um, which is manifestly untrue. Uh, there are just, some things have woken us up. We've got nasty jolts mm -hmm. you know, in the last 20 years or so. 9-11, uh, uh, September 11 was, um, I was in uh, working in New York actually just uh, a few months before um, on a documentary and watching that roll out and having been in that process, I was working on a documentary about the insane confidence in that city in New York that everybody felt like they were on top of the world and this is where you came to make it and everyone was going to be a, a great success. And we made this documentary about this incredible confidence and, and it was a questioning documentary. And then um, six months later, um, the Twin Towers were in rubble yeah, and yeah. that city's psychic crash. So the first thing is this idea of postmodernism. Mm. And no matter, we seem to forget it very easily, but the truth is there is a truth and not all truths work the same way. Yeah. And they're not all equally valuable. But the second thing that seems to drive our society uh, is what I would call hyper-individualism. Yeah. And it's this idea, not just that there's a value to the individual, we don't have any trouble. In fact, that's a very Christian idea. Mm. That in, historically speaking, the United Nations developed that into mm. a charter for the individual yeah. based on a, you know, some key Christians working on that, that, uh, that each individual does have value because from a Christian perspective, we're all made in the image of God. But hyper-individualism, you know, says that the most important person in the universe from my perspective is me. Mm. Uh, and I find that to be a very damaging storyline. It's told some insane lies, yeah. uh, particularly the kids. Um, firstly, uh, things like you can be anything you want to be, mm. as if somehow we all started from an equal playing field, mm. which is a terrible thing to say to someone if they are asking themselves after 10 years of striving at something, how come... I'm not as successful as that person or how come that didn't work out for me? 
when the truth is there's a lot in our in this world that is well beyond our control. Yeah. So, and there are other things too about you know individualism that uh, that tell me that uh, that justify my actions in almost any respect. Yeah. Um, that, that tell me as I'm walking, you know, in times like this, as I'm walking towards the, the pastor aisle in the shopping center and there's one bag left on the shelf, that if I can get there before the person at the other end of the, the, the aisle, then it's perfectly okay for me to take it out yes. and that's okay. There's no consideration of their needs. It's me taking care of me. Yes. And um, so I think no truth and me first yeah. are the narratives which shape a lot of storylines. You can find them. I've got some good friends working at Disney, but I would say that um, Disney storylines help kids digest that from a very early age. Yes. That uh, um, find your way through. It's your way that matters. So mm. there's no truth idea. And, um, you know, be all you can be, mm. which is the hyper-individualism idea. Put yourself first. Are just staples for um, Pixar and, and and Disney and and Touchstone and all the rest of them. And pop culture in general. The tragedy in that respect. Okay. Yeah, I think um, we just grow up on it and then we replicate it as we go. Um, but there, that's not to say that there's not great storylines out there. You know, one that keeps on coming back is the we can't make sense of it. Everybody always gets gets struck by wonder when this storyline comes out. When somebody sacrifices for love, mm. it could be the love of family or love of, the, of their um, their community or or just love of people they don't even know, like mm. um, crippled children or people with eye conditions. Or, mm. When somebody sacrifices, that goes right against everything we understand. You know that there is no truth, and and it's all about you. Yeah. When somebody sacrifices, our society stops and takes breath. Yeah. Um, and, and we question ourselves and we celebrate it. We don't quite understand it at the same time. And how could you if you didn't understand that actually the height of love is someone else first yeah. and me last? So you're yeah. suggesting there that, it, that it, for the, the noise of our cultural story that there is, there is something that even still transcends that, that is eternal, that Phrases oh, earlier. absolutely! In the hearts of humanity, there is a call to something bigger than the everyday yeah. culture we're influenced let, by. Let me put it this way: um, uh, if you don't mind me, sort of like being a bit, uh, bit of a storyteller for a moment. The um, you know, if you look at creation as if God, you know, made humanity in His image, it's almost like um, a small figure looking into a big mirror. Mm. You know, um, and you know, it's um. Or maybe the other way around, a big figure looking into a small mirror. But uh, but the idea is that there we are in our hearts is the reflection of God mm. uh, on a much smaller scale. Now you can take that mirror and you can smash it, mm. but you can't eliminate the fragments of reflection that go on. When I review film or TV or things like that, I never fail to find those reflections of the character of God, no matter how dedicated the society or the storyline is mm. to oppose God, we can't help but, but finding those reflections again because we were made in someone's image and we're not going to get rid of that um, simply by saying we don't want to be uh, part of the story anymore. Yeah. Um, it's like my kids are never going to cease to be my kids no matter what happens to our relationship. They, For a start, we've only got one set of genes in the Hadley family and we all look pretty much the same. You know, but the, uh, that you could take that to a spiritual level too. And I, I think that's why 
regardless of how hard the society pushes against God, we're always going to be drawn back to our Father. Yeah. You know, we're always going to have that link and we're always going to know the story. Mm. Uh, and, you know, whether or not we admit it to ourselves is another thing. Mm. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Mark, our time is pretty much um, run. <laughs> There's so many more things I'd love to ask you about. I, I wanted to know, having spent a life crafting your writing skills, what is it? What has it done to to change your perception of the the stories of scripture? Do you do you look at those in a different way because of your journalistic experience? No, I think um, uh, well, I can launch into it, but how long do we have? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to say that um, what one thing I want to say straight out is that uh, as a Christian, honing my skills, I've become more and more certain of the end of every story. Yeah, right. You know, it's much it's much easier to see. Uh, it's almost like, uh, I don't know if you, as a principal, I'm sure you never did this, but um, you're probably just very good at your maths. But if I didn't know how a problem was working out and I was trying to work on a sum at school, I'd flip to the back, find the answer, and then try and work backwards. Yeah. Um, and the Bible, for me, the, the more I've spent time writing, the more I've spent time digesting, you know, God's word, the more I realize that we have an ability as Christians to flip to the back, mm. see how things are going to work out, mm. see what the truth is in people's hearts, whether they say it or not. And then we can come back into our life and go, well, I know I'm talking to somebody, whether they believe it or not, whether they say it or not, mm. in their heart, they know there's right. Mm. They know there's wrong. They know there's more than themselves. There's, there's answers I can actually put back into it. Mm. And I guess it doesn't matter now. Even as I've honed my skills as a writer, I used to think of a dozen different ways to end the story. And maybe I still have a dozen different ways to end something. But the truth is, uh, I still know that real endings are going to line up with what the Bible says about the world. Mm. Uh, and I figure whether I'm writing a news story or whether I'm writing a documentary, whether I'm writing a novel or a children's book or something like that, um, it's not really true in the end for me unless it rings true, you know, with his story. Mm, yeah. Mark, that's fantastic. I've so enjoyed hearing a bit about the way you um, have responded to God's unfolding story in your life. and uh, the <laughs> I'm, way glad. I'm glad it's been a pleasure to you. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> the way that uh, he's using you to shed some light on the story of the world. And uh, I'm very prayerful that people will be listening to this and have some encouragement about it. Always happy to help them. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Been a delight. 